Second Peter, one of the uh, sections that talks about uh, living a godly life, one of the sections of Scripture that uh, directs us in a lot of ways to uh, be alert to what the second coming is going to have to be and is going to be like. And it's uh, a lot of good stuff in the, in the book of Second Peter. We're working on just the opening remarks right now today. And uh, I wanted to make sure that you understand because if we can anchor ourselves in these opening remarks, it becomes very critically important. One of the things that, I, that I've always found, and, and I've shared it with you many different times, and, and uh, Liz shared it a little last week when... Uh, when we, you know, sometimes get under stuff, it can happen to all of us. We just kind of all of a sudden are under, and uh, we forget uh, in our own lives, every one of us, we just forget the, the mercy and the grace of God and the other things, and we just feel burdened because we're not measuring up to the standard that we know God wants us to be at or anything else like that. There was a really neat little story that uh, we read in the men's study that talked about uh, David and uh, the, his men had stopped at a certain brook. And uh, I can't think of the name of the brook right now, but they had about 600 men. David is being pursued by Saul, and he's responsible for about 600 men and basically their, their wives and families. And uh, they had been over there ready to help uh, the, the Israelites, or the, the, actually the Philistines. They were going to help the Philistines fight the Israelites. It was one of David's bad days. Uh, and uh, then they're coming back, and the Amalekites had come in a uh, few days earlier and stolen all their wives and all their children and all their possessions. And so the Amalekites have days head start. They're down the road, and here come David and his men. They're exhausted. They have, didn't get in the fight, but they come back from the battle that they were supposed to be a part of. They're exhausted, and they're weeping, and they're wailing, and they're grieving. They want to kill David because he's allowed their wives and their children to be taken uh, the whole town has been emptied out by the attack, this kind of secret attack of the Amalekites on the, his people. And so they seem to sit there for a little while, a few days or whatever it turns out to be. And then uh, they start to say, we will. David goes, Lord, what do you want us to do? Uh, because they had no idea. They only had 600 men. And when you start taking on a nation that can put together anywhere between a, a 30 to a 70 or 100,000 man army, you don't just go over there with 600 men. So he says, Lord, what do you want us to do? And God says, pursue them. I will give them over into your hand. And in that story then, they, they're running and they're exhausted. They're chasing. They're trying to make up the time. And they're, they're, they're thinking all the thoughts. What would you be thinking as a man if uh, somebody had come along and kidnapped your wife and your children and they were soldiers and they were wicked, had taken all your possessions and were carrying them back to their own homeland? What would you be thinking as you understand your own wives and your own children as you're pursuing? Well, there's the emotional pressure. There's the physical exhaustion they're dealing with. There's the intellectual things that they're battling and everything else going into it. And they stop at this brook. And they kind of wade down into the stream and they're drinking. They're trying to get refreshed. And they're just exhausted. And David shouts out, let's go. And of the 600 men, 200 men, it says simply could not get up and go. They didn't have any more energy. They were exhausted. They said, you're going to have to go on without us. We can't go on any further. And in the book, it points out, it says, how exhausted do you have to be not to be able to get up and try and rescue your wife, your children, and your family? They were exhausted. 
And so the question came, what is David going to do with these 200 men who refuse and cannot get up? And it goes on to explain that David in the decision says, then we will go forward without them. And he takes the 400 men and he begins marching. He leaves the others behind. He begins marching. And along the way, they find an old Egyptian. and They kind of nurse him back to health. And it turns out this Egyptian happens to know where the Amalekites are stationed and where their home base is. And in this process, David and his men attack the Amalekites, destroy every one of them or send them off running, and recapture their own wives and families and all the other things, all their possessions as well as whatever else the Amalekites left behind. Then they march back to the brook. And this is where the real purpose of the story becomes significant. And the wives and the children and the families are marching back and they're going, where's my dad? Why isn't my dad here? How come he didn't help rescue us? How, you know, the questions, where's my husband? Okay. They march eventually back to the brook and there are those 200 men now refreshed having been eating and sleeping and relaxing by the brook. And they now are given a very critical question. What should we do with these 200 men who chose not to fight? And that becomes the miracle of the story. You know the answer, of course. So good. Isn't that a little more, a little more, a little more? The answer. David goes and he says, I mean, he's got this decision, right? These 200 men, they don't fight. They don't, they, they haven't gained back any of their possessions. And the rules of war would have been such that we'll give you your wife and your kids back. That's all you get. We'll divide the spoils between those of us who really were man enough to fight. Right? David says, We will give them back their wives and their children and we will divide the spoils among us and restore to each man that which was taken from him. And the account is about what the church needs to be and become instead of sometimes the way we treat people that don't measure up. You see, the real glory in the story is that David and his men finally understand that when you can't go on, someone else is doing it for you, pressing on into it, accomplishing what you can't accomplish. And in the middle of winter, in the middle of the doldrums of February, in all the different things that you might feel as you deal with day 37 of a snowfall of another inch and a half, where you have the debate of whether you're going to have to shovel it or not, or whether it's going to melt by Tuesday, or whatever the debate might be, and all that stuff kind of piles up, the miracle is that sometimes people can't go on. Sometimes emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, physically, they're spent. 
There is no more energy. There is no spiritual juice. They don't feel like loving their wives. They don't feel like caring about their husbands. They don't feel like taking care of their families. They don't feel they can deal with one more child's whining and pouting and crying. They're worn out. And the question is not do people wear out. The question is, church, what do you do when people wear out around you? That's the challenge that I want you to grapple with as we listen to this text because I want you to hear that God is encouraging us to understand that He is the one doing it all, working it all, carrying it all, and you sometimes get to see the benefits and the blessings of it. And every once in a while when you're flat on your face and you can't take the next step and you're overwhelmed by the the conflicts of the world and the depressions of the moment and the battles in your families and the struggles with husbands, wife, and children and everything else, that that God steps into there and says, I'm like David and the 400. When you can't fight, I am fighting for you. You just get to see it and experience it now in a very concrete and real way. The reason the Amalekites were defeated, and David says this, was not because we were strong enough to defeat the Amalekites. David says, God has given them into our hand. And because he knew that they were given into their hand by the mercy and the grace of God, that their attitude toward those other 200 men changed. Because you stepped back and you didn't say, thank God I'm not like those people who don't have enough of the fire of God in their heart. Or not like that woman or like that man or like that kid. And you begin to, you begin to say, somehow you deserve the glory. And you draw it to yourself. And instead, what David said is, God has given them into our hand. And if you start and end with the mercy and the grace of God, it changes how you interact with your family, how you respond to people who are hurting. It changes how you view yourself. And so watch the first verses here. One more time, listen to them. It says, Peter, a slave, it's doulos in the Greek, a slave and an apostle of Jesus. I am Jesus' slave. Now, you got to remember who's writing this because Peter is relating to us more, probably more than a lot of people in the disciples. We think of him, and because we have so many details about his impetuousness, his stupidity, his, his lack of real understanding, his ability to deny his Lord, his lack of ability to even understand himself, and God's willingness to walk into Peter's life and rescue this man. We've got a man who has been there, done that. We've got a man who understands the circumstances of our lives. And so it goes, Peter, it's me, Peter. I'm a slave. I have a desire to totally be sold out to Jesus Christ. And I have been sent on a mission. That's the apostle one there. To those through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now notice the method. Through. Through what? Through you? Through something you've got? through the power of your sword, through the fact that you could fight the Amalekites? No. It goes through the righteousness of our God and our Savior Jesus Christ, and look at the next word and mark it, underline it, star it, have received a faith. If I have been given the faith I possess, and I have been given this fantastic, unbelievable gift, not because I dragged myself and said, I've got the sharpest sword, and I am the best weapon fighter in the the battle or in the in the congregation, but instead I go, I have been given by God this righteousness. I have been poured out on by the mercy of God. It changes the way I respond and react. 
And so what it says, I have received a faith, and then it goes, says, and Peter goes on, uh, to those who have received a faith as precious as ours. And Peter likes that. I mean, <coughs> you have a tendency, right? You can, you can put a person on a pedestal. I don't care if it's a, a man, a woman, a boss, a, a pastor, a teacher, somebody. You put them up there on the pedestal, and I look at you and say, what in the world would you ever put me on a pedestal for? And why would you ever put Peter on a pedestal? And we step back and we, we just do it sometimes. And God says, stop. And Peter says, stop. He goes, they have received a faith. And you know what? It is equally precious to ours. The word equal is a part of the Greek word. It is of equal value to everyone else's faith. It's not like, thank God I'm the pastor. Thank God I got a bigger faith and something better than you. Thank God I'm not like you. Peter instead takes it and he just lowers himself and he says, do you understand we stand equally before God. The faith that you've been given and the faith I've been given is one and the same. And he's doing this for a very special reason. He wants you to know anything you see me doing, you can do. Anything you've heard about me, God carrying and rescuing him. If God is able to rescue Peter, he looks at you and says, he's certainly able to rescue you. He's creating this sense of equality and this balance so that you and I can relate to it very clearly. Then he goes on and he says, grace and peace be yours in superabundance, in overflowing, not just enough to get along. I want grace and peace, and as he pours it out, he says, overflowing in your life, in abundance, to be being poured out in you <coughs> so that you begin to understand that one little piece of popcorn there. You had those popcorn in your throats too, huh? Uh, in abundance, and you begin to go... Peter is just grabbing hold of something. He's saying, do you understand who I am? I'm an impetuous fisherman who made more mistakes than probably any other disciple. And I, and I denied Christ. And you don't want to know something? My faith is the same as yours. It is a gift of God. It has been extended to me. And then he talks about the super abundance that is poured out into us. It goes, open the prize or open, excuse me, <coughs> the package. Open the package. And look at it. And if you've ever seen those, those things where sometimes the package just keeps popping out and popping out and it keeps coming out. He goes, open it and watch the super abundance of what's coming in there or coming out of your life. And he goes, grace and peace be yours in the abundance through the knowledge of God and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. <coughs> Boy, excuse me. I apologize to you. <coughs> Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus and of our Lord. Next line. His power. See it? His power. You want to know where you are? You're one of the two hundred. You want to know where I am? I'm one of the two hundred. And you want to know who Christ is? He's the 400. What you can't do, <coughs> excuse me, what you can't do, it goes on, His divine power has given us everything we need, two things, for life and for godliness. 
You see, you can open the package and you can begin to taste some of it. But there's more. You understand? The prize, the additional things that are in the package, you go, is there more than just these little sweet kernels of corn? Yes. And if you get the old ones, there used to be nuts down in the bottom and a few other things that you may have enjoyed. And then you go a step further and then you find the prize, but not just one prize, these multiple prizes. Because you got to understand what Peter is trying to communicate to the people. These are people under persecution. These are people that are anticipating the possibility of death and suffering as a result of their Christian faith. These are people that Peter is going to be addressing about the coming of the Antichrist and the work of lawlessness and the spirit of wickedness and darkness that wants to attack and destroy him. And he's looking out at them and he's saying, do you understand that you bring nothing to this, but your confidence is not on how you're feeling or what it feels like in this particular moment or whether you're on fire for God? Your confidence is in God's ability to do for you what he did for me. And his ability to hang on to you in your denial, in your impetuousness, in your stupidity and ignorance, in your fear and frustration and rejection. God's willing to reach into your circumstance and continually hang on to you. So he goes on, he says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him through that uh, characteristic, through that full discovery of, of who he is, who has called us. Uh, I told you that the theme at Milwaukee Lutheran this year is pursued by Christ. And the theme is that, that people are developing is trying to grab hold. We keep thinking we got something to bring to Jesus. And it isn't that Jesus doesn't treasure and value you. And, uh, you know, it's like the, the smallest little scribble from your little grandchild or your son or daughter becomes a precious gift because that child has made that effort to draw a picture, whatever it is. It becomes precious because of who that person is in your life, not because you critically looked at it and said, well, that really measures up to some standard of excellence, but because of who you are in relation to that child. God looks at you and says, I treasure your smallest drawing and scribble because I am in this relationship with you. Because I feel this way toward you. So you begin to recognize what God is trying to communicate through Peter is that Peter recognizes he was loved when I was denying Christ. I was even warned not to do it. I was told, Peter, you're being impetuous, you're being foolish. Satan is going to sift you out like just so much wheat. He's going to destroy your life. He's going to ruin you. He's going to shame you. And I stood back and arrogantly responded, oh, no, Lord, not me. That was me relying on myself. And Peter said, look at my life. Look at my example. When I started to hold myself up and rely upon myself and all those things, I collapsed and fell flat on my face. In the same Bible study we're working through in men's study, you begin to understand David has got these behaviors and characteristics where sometimes he's God's man and he stands out as God's man. But many, many times he's not asking God. He's not saying, Lord, what is your will? David is doing what David wants to do and living the way David wants to live. And so in the context, you begin to understand he's challenging us to be continually following through on this. He goes, through our knowledge of him who called us by his, and notice the phrase there, again, his own glory and goodness. 
You've been called not because you're worthy of being called. You're not called because you're pretty. You're not called because you're smart or handsome. You're not called because you're young or strong. You're not called because there's some quality in you that makes you unique to everybody else in the world. You're not called for any other reason than God and His mercy, His goodness, and His grace. It says, because of the valor, the character of God, I want you. And it says that you rely not on what you're bringing, but on the character of God. So if my eyes are saying, I don't bring worth, but that's not the question, God. You have determined I have value and worth. I rely on your judgment. My friends tell me I'm stupid, I'm ugly, I'm no good, I'll never succeed. But you, Lord, have called me by name. You, Lord, have put your mark upon me. You, Lord, have said you have gone, you will go to the cross for my sins. And even though this comes from my most wicked friend or enemy, or it comes from the most loved friend or enemy in my life, that person is not going to be the judge of my life. I will trust instead on your willingness to call me by name, desire me, and want me. And so you begin to recognize if you're going to survive the challenges of your life and circumstance, you can't let your self-esteem or your value or your worth be based on what your husband or wife says to you. It can't be based on what mom or dad say or don't say. It can't be based on what some guy or girlfriend says or some close friend or relative or whoever it may be. It has to be based on the relationship that you have. God in his character, his wisdom, his integrity, and his power and his might looks at me and pursues me and says, you, I want you. And you look up and say, are you sure? And Peter wants you to go, do you look at me? He says, look at me. I'm a stinking fisherman. I smelled a fish. I didn't have the faith in God that I needed to be God's man. I walked in boldness and absolute ignorance and still Christ wanted me. And when I fell flat on my face and I couldn't get up and I was terribly ashamed of everything I had become, you want to know something else? Christ came and pursued me and he said, Peter, and he restored me. You love me. And he restored me. So you go on to this next verse. <clears throat> Excuse me. Through these, he has given us his great and precious, I'm going to change the word, prizes. Did you pay attention, kids? God has put in your life prizes. It's almost like the Cracker Jack. Through his purpose, he bagged it up, stuffed these prizes into it, set it out, said, I choose to give this to you, kids. And he says now, watch what goes on. Through these things, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you can participate in the divine nature. You can become godly, godlike, God-responsive, God-wise, God-communicative, God-willing to bear up under things that... No other human being would be able to bear up. That's why he's looking at you going, just let the prize open up. Watch what God's got there. Don't quit. There's more. And that's what Peter had to keep discovering. Peter kept thinking he had God figured out, Christ figured out. And when he was done and he said, 
Peter, God, I think my bag's empty. He says, Peter, go back in again and go, there's another prize. And what's that prize? Total and complete forgiveness, Peter, for your denying me. God, you got to be kidding. He says, no, there's plenty more where that one came from. And he goes, do you understand my reliance is not on the quality of man I've been this week. My reliance is not on the quality of Christian I am. My reliance is not on the strength of my faith. It's in the courage and will of God to hold on to me. Uh, the courage and will of God to love my children. Work in a marriage. Change a situation. Affect your life. Deal with you in the middle of the greatest crisis or the greatest blessing you ever face. That's where your reliance is. That's why you can begin to sound like those other prophets and apostles who begin to say, whether I live or die, it's okay because God's in control. I know that in all things God is working for my good. How does he say that? Not because he's got something you don't have. It's because you've been given what he's been given. He opened it up and he read it and he said, oh my goodness, look at this prize. It includes being taken care of when I don't even feel like being good. It includes being loved even when everything I've said and thought for the last week, month, or year has been hateful and destructive. Does God really care about me that much? The answer is open the prize. You understand? That's what Peter's trying to communicate. So he goes on and he says, through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through those precious promises you can participate in the divine nature and last, escape the corruption of the world caused by wicked and evil desires. There are a lot of Christians that have their Cracker Jack bag and have never opened it. They've got the bag, but it's not open. There are a lot of Christians that have torn a little corner off the Cracker Jack bag and pulled maybe one piece out and reaped whatever blessing comes from that little bitty piece. But they thought they maybe had to measure it out or they, they just, that was enough. That's enough. I don't want too much. There are only handfuls of Christians that have ripped the bag wide open and experienced what God has poured out into our lives. And then there's probably way too small a number to begin to guess of those who have opened and experienced prize after prize after prize. God, you will actually listen to my prayers? God, you actually will change life and circumstances because I ask you? God, you are able to help me love this person, this man, this woman like I've never loved? You're kidding. You see, it's the miracle of opening that up. And every word, every single word is what you receive and what God gives in this text. And you've got to hang on to that. Because otherwise, when you go to the other parts of Peter, you're going to be looking back and saying, I just don't measure up. I'm not doing it. I can't be God's man. And God goes, open up another present. Open it up. Let go. There's more prizes. There's more that I've given to you. And so he says this promise to you. Through these things, through these qualities in God, He's given us these great and precious promises so that through those promises, that's where your trust is, because God has promised, you will participate in acting, living, and behaving like the divine nature, like God. And as you do that, you will be set free. You will escape. It means you will run from and be set free from the hold You'll be broken free and you'll taste freedom like you've never tasted it before. You'll escape the corruption. What's the corruption of the world? The lies and the deception. 
that you can somehow live contrary to God's will and it won't be a problem for you. you know, the corruption of the world is the lies and the deception. There is no hope. Money is what matters. The only thing you have to worry about is stuff. The corruption of the world that says, it's your life, it's your body, do whatever you want with it. The corruption of the world that says, if you're unhappy, don't hang out with this person anymore. If they're not very lovable, stop loving them and find somebody new. What's the corruption of the world? It surrounds you. It floods you on television. It floods your life. It whispers to you like all the things that eventually took uh, Peter down. Aren't you that man? We saw you with him. The corruption accuses. The corruption of the world attacks. And if you're not careful, you will not escape. But if you do, rely on God instead of on yourself, your whole response changes. And so the miracle of this text is this, that you will escape the corruption of the world caused by its evil desires. I want you to hang everything on these opening verses. We're going to be going through Second Peter in a lot of different texts. Whenever you feel like, oh my goodness, I have failed, I feel like Peter in denying Christ, I feel like stupid Peter, I've started to walk on water, I really had faith and all of a sudden I sank. Whenever you feel like any of those things, I want you to run back to this text because that's where Peter wanted you to go. And he said, you want to know who I have to trust? I always have to trust in Jesus. You want to know why? Because I don't have anything different than you have. My faith, your faith is an equal gift from God. Let's walk through that and the power that comes from that. As Peter communicates that, then you understand the power that's come in to come to you through this text and through this chapter in the book. Pray with me if you would. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your man Peter. I thank you, Lord, not for his mistakes, but I do thank you for his mistakes in the sense that it reminds me that forgiveness and wholeness and strength and power is not in the man, the pastor, the husband, the wife, the child, but it's in you, Jesus. The strength to love is not something I build up and exercise and, and finally do. The strength to love and forgive comes from my reliance on you. Lord Jesus, I so easily become that Pharisee standing in the front of the church saying, thank God I'm not like other people. And Peter reminds me to stand in the back with my head down, thanking God that he's willing to love a man like me and looking to the right or to the left and seeing my brothers and my sisters, no matter how wicked I may perceive their sin to be, loved by the same Spirit, called to the same faith, empowered by the same mercy and grace as all of us. Lord Jesus, put in this church such a sense of trusting in You that there is no sense of self, but instead it's a reliance that You choose to listen to my prayers. You choose to value my needs. You choose to treasure me. You choose to pursue me. You choose to pursue the people in my life around me. You choose to love the worst politician or the best politician. You choose to value the, the, the best individual in my life, the best boss or the worst boss. You choose to value and care about my worst enemy as much as my best friend. And God, when I see people and experience people through the power of what you show me and what I taste and experience from you, then, Lord Jesus, my responses become filled with godliness. Lord, create in us the godliness that comes 
from opening up the bag, tasting the Cracker Jack, and prize after prize after prize. Lord Jesus, help us never to stop looking for more from you. Because whatever it is we need, it'll be there for us. So, Lord, bless us. We pray for your spirit to be upon us and your grace to fill us. It's in your name, Jesus. Amen.